This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. We're off. Right. Okay. Um, <coughs> I decided to do a talk on paravanity and on death, and it's been kind of like haunting me for weeks. It's like having death following behind me for weeks, and it's quite a sobering experience. The title is Life for a Limited Time Only. Um, so I've just written some ideas and tried to string them together. I remember after I gave a talk last WESAC, last year, um, Singha Chandras came up and said to me, that was ten very good talks, all squeezed into an hour, so I've been trying to put less in. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Okay, so if you're sitting comfortably. Um, so you can, if you look, if you, if you dig around in, in the Buddhist tradition and in Buddhist material and texts, you can find material about living as a family uh, and ways of making work your practice. Now, a real stretch, if you <coughs> dig in there, you'll find... Um, material that will be relevant to environmental and social issues. You can find all that, yeah? But there's no problem finding material about death. Yeah? Buddhism does death well and does death big. So I'm going to try to explain why. Yeah? So the first section is called The Inevitability of Death. Yeah? It's a lovely essay by uh, Sangharakshita called um, Where Buddhism Begins and Why It Begins There. And it's in uh, Crossing the Stream. It's in a, a series of essays that he wrote. They were mainly editorials for little magazines that were published in India way back in the 50s. There's some quite lovely stuff in there. In fact, you don't even have to buy it. I'm going to get in trouble from Hillary and Tom here, but you can, you can see it. You can find an, a PDF of the whole book on sangaraksta.org. Pardon? Out of well, so print. There you go. Right, I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get into trouble after all. Then <laughs> that's a relief. And um, here's a quote from it: Recognition of the first noble truth of suffering comes not as a pleasant intellectual diversion, but as a terrible emotional shock. Buddhism starts not with a concept, but with a feeling; not with intellectual postulation, but with emotional experience. And he goes further into that. The Buddhism starts why it starts there and why it strength comes from that and why that has led to survive all these thousands of years. Anyway, Buddhism doesn't begin with an abstract concept. Yeah? It doesn't start with a god or a ground of being or nature or matter or society or money or capital or progress or the right of the individual or the right to the pursuit of happiness or the dialectic material struggle of the working class or class, or gender, or race. It doesn't start with you having to adopt any of these abstract concepts and work from there. It starts with immediate experience. It starts with suffering, the first noble truth. There's that classic list of what suffering is. Old age, sickness, death, grief and lamentation, being parted from what we love, having to be with what we hate. Yeah. So here it all is. This is part of life. Death is a fact in our experience of life. Yeah. It's real events, ours and other people's deaths in our real life. So to say we're all going to die, or we're going to die, is not pessimistic. Yeah? Pessimistic is where we see things 
is worse than they are, such as everything is suffering. Yeah, that kind of uh, calumny that people put onto Buddhism, like it's all suffering. That's pessimistic because you can just go out and have a nice ice cream or eat that cake that Robert made or something. It's like, I'm enjoying this, this is not suffering, yum, yeah. So life is not, that's not, that's a pessimistic, that's worse than it is. Optimism is where we see things as better than they are, yeah. We're going to be happy all the time. One day, we're just going to be all be happy all the time, yeah. If you say you're going to die, it's just realistic, it's just a matter of fact, yeah. It's not exaggerating the issue, it's not minimising the issue. It's just stating it matter-of-factly. It's what is actually going to happen. In our society, um, with a fine health system in our country, and with a high life expectancy, for each of us, our retirement is quite probable. Yeah? But our death is inevitable. Yeah? So, but no matter how developed your country is, yeah, no matter how long you can expect to live, everybody still dies once. It doesn't hasn't been out of fashion with period costume. Yeah. You look back in old medieval texts and it's like, they've been on and on about death. They've got that's a terrible society. But every one of them died just once. And every one of us will die just once. Yeah, it's just as popular. Yeah. And we prepare for retirement, yeah, because it's that's probable. We prepare for that. But do we prepare for our death? The next section is called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. I never thought I'd be quoting Damien Hurst. <laughs> a terrible object, we even call it art, but a rather good title. Yeah, uh, That's the big shark in the tank. Yeah. I haven't recalled that for a while. Death is the ultimate in ungraspability. Yeah. I've been reflecting this, and I read years ago someone mentioning, I think maybe a Hindu teacher, but he was saying that death is not something we learn to face. It's when we lose our face altogether. Quite graphic, isn't it? But it's like we think like we can be big and brave and everything and get over it. Yeah. But death is um, it's ungraspable, it's unfixable, it's ungetoverable. Yeah. All stories that we make are inadequate, they fall short. Yeah. We have ideas of continuing past death, we have ideas of ceasing upon death. They're all equally abstract, yeah, they're all speculative, yeah. And the way they're constructed on this side by us. All these consolations we make up, if we're sentimental, if we're cynical, all the fears we make up, they're all made by us here in this side of death, isn't it? It's like Hamlet's thing about when he decides to what I could end this life with a bare bodkin, isn't it? And then he thinks, there's the rub, he just doesn't know what'll come, and that stops him. And that is the impossibility, inconceivability, the, the physical impossibility. You cannot conceive of death in a living mind. I've been reflecting on this poem by Philip Larkin. I was told it was pronounced Obad. It's a very famous poem. It says, Most things may never happen, this one will. He's lying awake at four in the morning, and the room's slowly becoming light. And it's a lovely, it's not really lovely, but it's a very typical Larkin gloomy picture of life and um, he's sitting there contemplating death as they're facing him and he says most things may never happen this one will being brave lets no one off the grave death is no different why that than withstood so this strikes me as a brilliant poem as poetry the way the words work and the way structure works is brilliant it's um, 
and it's uncompromisingly depicting the bare fact of death. I was talking about this poem on, on retreat the other week, telling people I was going to be doing this talk, and they pointed out it's an essay by Seamus Heaney, so I dug this out in his uh, book of essays, The Redress of Poetry, in which he, he compares this poem by Larkin by a poem by Yeats. And he's saying that Yeats is a more creative response to death. It's like you respond to death, or you, you live life as a theatre, as a kind of a role. And it's much more creative, much more imaginative, <coughs> and much more optimistic than this bleak one of Larkin. So he puts the favour towards Yeats. And it says, it is differently stood. Yeah? And there are human creative responses to death. So hopefully I'll get round to these. Still, death is a frontier, isn't it, of any personal growth, yeah, because the personal runs out. Your personality runs up and goes no further. Yeah. It's where the self and self-development too can go no further. Yeah. So all we build up, self-esteem, wealth, skills, relationships, knowledge, our hard-earned opinions, we leave it behind. Yeah, we leave it all behind. I was trying to think, <coughs> what phrase would you have of what goes with you? Because we're reflecting on those... Um, Contemplations and those, those, those uh, verses we're reading out during the meditations earlier. That's <coughs> like death is inevitable, the time of death is uncertain, and only the Dharma will be of use at the point of death. So suffering is going on. And I thought the newest I could think of was there's all these externals, all these things you pile up. The Dharma, or what does carry on, or what does make a difference, it's something a bit deeper. And the newest phrase I could think of was a change of heart. So we put all this effort into developing ourselves in all these ways, like we decorate ourselves like a big overloaded Christmas tree, don't you? All these um, skills and self-esteems and money and connections and everything. And then, uh, why we do this? Because there's nothing bigger in our culture today than me. Yeah? This me has to hold everything. Yeah? It's astounding modern language where you get all these huge pantheons of generations, people with reveres miles above them. Suddenly it's all part of our subconscious. We load it onto ourselves. Yeah? The Buddha within, the inner guru, it all has to be held on us, all squeezed into me. We end up doing less and less collective things. We do less of, well, less of us bother voting. Yeah? And there's, you know, I was reading that 50 pubs close a week at the moment. So we can't even get drunk together. <laughs> we can't even go out and misbehave together. We're losing any kind of reference beyond this me, beyond where I am. And we even do it inversely. Yeah? We even sort of, some of us by temperament don't so much build ourselves up as put ourselves down. I'm rubbish, I'm a failure. Yeah? We're still piling it all up on us, focusing it all around us. Yeah? The sort of dirty cell protest to the world. I'm rubbish, I'm crap, I can't manage it. Yeah? It's still putting that huge weight on our individual selves. We build ourselves up with our problems. We build ourselves up with being ill and fill our whole lives because there's no bigger context with my problem, my treatment, my diet, dedicating our lives to sort of a particular uh, thing that we attach to ourselves, that we build ourselves up. And this is why death today is taboo. Yeah? Death meet me meets it and can go no further. It's the end of me. Yeah? But the thing like Comedians are lovely, they're brilliant, they're very useful because you notice them poking fun at things that become taboos. And as the years go by and taboos change, you see them moving their attack. 
there's very few of them really go towards death. Even they stand respectfully and have a fear of even approaching it. So we can't handle it, we can't have a context for it because it's the end of this me that is the very centre of our world, it is our world. The last time I came back from India last February, I was sitting in a cafe and I was just watching people move about. And just for those few days when you come back from a different country, you see your own place very differently. And it was awesome watching individuals who had developed so much individuality and intensity on themselves. And they had huge amounts of space around them. In India, they were just cramming, rushing away and going to work and doing all these things and everyone's much close together. There's people walking up down Great Western Road with enormous space. And it was just kind of great creatures that had put so much effort, so many resources into developing them. These towering individuals. And this enormous space that we need around us. Yeah. And the amount of resources that we need to maintain this and pile this in. What was the reason that a British child has a carbon footprint 150 times the size of an Ethiopian child. It's very costly, all this energy it takes to sort of make this marvellous me, this marvellous self. So no wonder we're so stressed, we're so exhausted, yeah. we're so lonely. <coughs> it's like we've been up all night uh, decorating the room we're staying in. And we've forgotten it's a hotel room and we're checking out before noon. Yeah. <laughs> and spend the whole night. I'm going to do it in this colour. This, this is in my colour. purple, lovely, you know. And it's like, you know, by noon the chap's going to be knocking the door, saying, "Excuse me, can I have my room back?" Yeah, and it, and it all goes in a flash. Yeah, none of it comes with us. None of it helps at the moment of death. Yeah, retail therapy won't work. Yeah, was the old, the old phrase when people did have humour about about death was that there's knee pockets in the shroud so let's see the talks I was listening to for this uh, on the four reflections by four women I think they did it at Tyrant Aloka yeah, yeah. Damadina Mitri um, Ratnavandana uh, Vajra Darshani I'm listening to that you were studying it last year some of you you can get it all in free Buddhist audio anyway Vajra Darshani talks about she gets she says she drew, drew the short straw she got the one on death and the reflection we're doing earlier and uh, she talks about her father dying recently not only was she shocked that here she was at 37 and she was expecting this to happen when she was in her 50s and then suddenly here it was her father dying just always quite poignant quite personal reflections on the experience and her watch father's watch was sitting there left behind and his vest was left behind She'd never seen him without a vest, and there it was, left behind. So these very personal things all just get left. So to engage with death, we need something bigger than the usual lifestyle choices, the usual politics, yeah? academic philosophies or science. They too always seem to run out on the border. You know these cowboy films where the posse is chasing after the bandit? Uh, usually the hero is bandit. And he gets to Rio Grande and he crosses into Mexico and the posse stops. <laughs> in my experience of all these their jurisdiction is Texas yeah. <laughs> we're just crossing over this river with a classical image of the river Styx and all that into this other territory and they just pull the horses up their jurisdiction runs out if you need something old you need a religion don't you which is equally at home in Mexico or Texas
Yeah, I've written here, Buddhist, Buddhist practice isn't a get-out-of-jail card. Yeah. It's not a way to sidestep suffering, death, loss. Yeah, we can always think, like, I just don't want to experience. Quite often we beginners in meditation, but we want that, don't we? We want to get a blank mind. We just want to be relieved and not experience. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to this, but I'm going to mention it several times. We're talking about uh, death. It's not moving into glibness, but it's like moving deeper into the experience, deeper into the experience of loss, and growing Going beyond, you're not really going beyond suffering, but you're going beyond the meaningless repetition of these experiences over and over again. Death, loss, grief, lamentation. You're finding a way of moving out from that suffering to an end of suffering. We need to be careful we don't misuse Buddhist teachings. We don't acquire them to suit ourselves. Yeah? For example, um, there's particular books. Uh, I've read, there's one in the bookshop that I won't mention, which uses the Tibetan Book of Dead as an way of um, establishing a continuity of consciousness that you will continue there will be a continuation of you there seems to be a complete misunderstanding of what death is used for in Buddhism and what the Tibetan Book of the Dead you all know about bardos Mm -hmm. the gap the space so it's not a little handy shuttle link between stations what is is a gap yeah it's uh, ungraspability itself. Yeah? There's something no thing can be built upon or hooked onto. Architect students always uh, get something thrown back to them and they design something that just won't stay up. You know, and then the, and the, whether it's the clerker works or the guy is trying to give them a qualification saying, there's no such thing as a sky hook. Yeah. <laughs> so you make some unlikely building and, and you've, you've just subconsciously thought, I can hook it on the sky. You know? But a bar though, yeah. There's no such thing as a sky hook. You cannot hook anything. You cannot um, build anything. You cannot establish anything on that. There's no continuity through that space. And that is why it's such a strong part of practice. It's the very gap between our certainties. And if there's a knowable, graspable thing there, it's not the bardo. And the other cliche we use, yes, that's continuity. The other cliche we use is just as inadequate, that of cessation, nothing Stopping that way of life. Life ends. There's no continuity. There's no meaning. There's no consequence. In a way, one is a sentimental approach. One is a cynical approach. It's the two extreme views. Yeah. One's called continuity. I think it's Sasatavada, the view of continuity. And the other one's the view of cutting off Uchedavada or something, isn't it? And it's like these are the extremes. And the middle way sort of passes between these. Middle East, another way. So this is the first way that Buddhism does death well. Yeah? It does not ignore it. Death is an aspect of the way things are. Yeah? And if we're not making the effort to pay as much attention as we can to how things are, yeah? how this is, how life is, and all its facets, yeah? then, and if we're not also making the same effort to cultivate an emotional positivity that can stay with that attention, emotional positivity and emotional robustness that sustains attention and we can hardly call ourselves Buddhists that's what Buddhism is it's a way of looking and seeing life with emotional robustness to be able to look at it and see it unadorned Buddhist practice is bigger than death to paraphrase Bill Shankly it's not a matter of death, life and death it's much more important than that yeah. so if we're serious about a Buddhist practice yeah we use death, and Buddhist practice uses death as a, a precious example 
of something it doesn't fit in. It doesn't fit into the normalised, fixed up, built up world we're stuck <coughs> within. We've got ourselves locked within. It's something that's a glitch, a gap, that we can't um, just glide over and be in a normal, uh, fixed way. And if we see us at Buddhist practice, we'll be, if we see us looking for freedom, we'll be on the lookout for such cracks, such gaps. Yeah? The same with an artist. Uh, if something goes wrong in a painting, they get very interested in how it, if it works. We see writers when they see they get words mixed up by accident. They love it because here's a chance to get beyond cliche and get beyond the predictable into something new, into something open. And in Buddhist practice, you're looking at the cracks and the gaps between like the normal get up routine. This is me. This is mine. This is that. This is this. Yeah. And death is there as the strongest example in our lives of where that doesn't fit, where that grasping, that closing, that fixing can't take hold. That's why in Buddhist practice we pay attention to it. The very fact that death is inconceivable in the mind of the living makes it very valuable indeed. Next section is Life is no other than death. Death no other than life. I've got a poem here from Staying Alive. It's a Blood Axe anthology. I've been poring over. It's got a lovely big six, thick section on death. Um, no wonder life's been a wee bit... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Jan Kaplinsky, yeah. Estonian. It's been translated, of course. Death does not come from outside. Death does not come from outside. Death is within, born, grows together with us, goes with us to kindergarten and school, learns with us to read and count, goes sledging with us and to the pictures, seeks with us the meaning of life tries to make sense with us of Einstein and Weiner, makes with us our first sexual contacts, marries, bears children, quarrels, makes up, separates, or perhaps not, with us, goes to work, goes to the doctor, goes camping, to the convalescent home in a sanatorium, grows old, sees children married, retired, looks after grandchildren, grows ill, dies with us, let us not fear then, our death will not outlive us. So again, to paraphrase something, I'm going to paraphrase the Heart Sutra. Death is no other than life. Life is no other than death. Death is only life. Life only death. Just the same emptiness form, life, death. Death is not something that waits at the end of life. It's part of it. Part of my research as well is uh, looking up, watching um, good old Dan Cruikshank on telly. I'm, I'm an addict of documentaries, especially people like Dan Cruikshank's involved. The Art of Dying is a TV programme. He's going around looking at like, war memorials and different aspects of artists working with death. And uh, one of the highlights was him interviewing Maggie Hambling. Do you know her? Mm. Brilliant drawer, brilliant artist. And she's talking about drawing her dead lover, her dead partner with a real zest and a real appreciation. Yeah. It's like her, her creative, her, her artist sort of... It's not so much sensibility as zest, zeal for life and for, 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 for form and for, for art. Kind of like takes in that death too. And she was showing Dan and the cameras the drawings. She talks about Rembrandt and Francis Bacon. She's like, they're artists who can draw a figure so that's alive. You can also see its mortality. 
particularly see that with Rembrandt, you get these faces, say of a middle-aged woman or a middle-aged man, and you can see like there's a real, I think Rembrandt gets it more than any artist, and there's a being there looking back. Yeah, got the, cat, the, 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 the paint almost rises at the canvas, it's almost like you can see the eyes, the real presence, a life, a vitality, a unique personality and energy in life there. At the same time, you see the pain and its flesh. It's a mortality of, 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 of flesh that is prone to decay and death. And they're both really heavy. Talked about that. You know, she was sort of, in her drawings, was like emulating and living up to, to what these guys could do. So both alive and dead. And there was death in life. So we're, looking, we're listening earlier to the, the, uh, the four reminders in the handouts there if you missed it the early before dinner so the preciousness of human life death and impermanence karma the actions of consequences and the defects of samsara or unenlightened life so we reflect on these the purpose of reflecting these is to improve the quality of our life it's not to hasten death or make us just wish it would come sooner but to improve the quality of being alive now Padma Vajra gave a series of talks recently uh, at Padma Loka on Padma Samava. And somewhere in there, I was listening to them, uh, he asked himself, if he was to die right now, would he be spending his last minutes doing this? <laughs> you can do this yourself. It's like, it's like the moment, like, is this the best way of spending my last minutes? <laughs> so you can reflect, um, oh, what's my favourite things? Swearing at a computer. You know, I just think... I'd like this to be a last minute. Yeah. Watching rubbish on TV. This is worse than like, your mother always said. Uh, make sure you get clean underwear in case you get run over. It's a bit like that. <laughs> on a moral level. Yeah. Or rehearsing mentally yet again that argument. You're never actually going to have out loud with the person. You know. Don't do that too, too often. You always go, no, 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 please uh, control it. Yeah. It's like, if that's going to be a last minute, you know, would you, would you choose differently? Yeah. So why do we do these things now in this precious moment? Yeah. It's like a stack of coins. This pound is worth as much as the last one, isn't it? Yeah. This moment is as valuable and is in relation to the last and the end of them as the last one. It's not a matter of uh, you know, that lad's magazine attitude of what things to do before you die is that desperation of like a kind of supermarket sweet grab you know you've got to get, try and get all the very very best things and cram it in because you've reached 40 or something it's not a matter of that it's a matter of um, just living each life as if it was a last one reflecting on the preciousness of it because yeah. those two reflections the first two on the preciousness of our human life and the reflection on permanence and death are closely woven together an awareness of death makes life precious. And most of us have had some moment where we've had a near-death event, yeah. a serious illness or an accident or something. I remember myself, I think I was still a teenager, but lying on a concrete floor with a bull's head digging into my chest. And it's like thinking, this is it. Yeah. And somehow getting up. And for a day or two, the nonsense was out. <laughs> and my family was precious and where I was was precious and life was precious and then the cobwebs slowly started <laughs> but the vitality of that day after you know, being brought up on a farm I know that that kills most people machinery and bulls and there I was like on concrete thinking it's over 
So it's that sense. You're reflecting on death to improve life. Who was I talking to? Was it Nick or something about the grieving process, about bereavement? And um, a big part of that is unresolved issues that someone has with the person that's died and you can't let go. A big bit of coming to terms with somebody's death, coming to terms with bereavement, is resolving that. And I thought, it's the same with our own lives. If we've resolved our life, then death, our death, will be a different matter. We'll be on terms with it. So we live well. So if we live well, we'll die well. So these four reminders, the practice is to overcome today's big ailments. Forget everything else. The big ones we've got to watch out for are complacency and dissipation. So I was trying to tighten this up. I'm trying to get this finished this morning. I I couldn't help thinking about shopping malls. They all seem for me to to be the, the... epitome of complacency and dissipation <coughs> like an anemic quality of them, it's a modern architecture that's sort of so minimal it makes shakers look like restoration dandies <laughs> just like steel and plainest woods white, not even white, white's a bit exciting, cream walls you know, lots of glass yeah. and I just thought of that scene in the Blues Brothers of the cars trashing that shopping mall, you remember that? And I've always thought it's the best response I've seen culturally to modern retail. <laughs> they, they drive in and they crash in and they come out. But you could be more elegant, couldn't you? And just, you know, someone like the Buchanan's, what was that one along there? Buchanan's? Yeah, I think I've been in twice to buy my father a tie or something. But you, you, that long, they're not even called corridors, what are they called? Concourses or something? Because mm-hmm. right in the middle is just a coffin. Just sitting there. And you can put lovely irises and draperies and things on it. And of course, you're, you, everyone would want to try and fit it into something. It's like, what are they selling here? You know, try to fit it into your pattern and you're consuming. It's like you go, shop, 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 shop. What are you selling here? Insurance? Or, you know, it's just, no, <laughs> just telling it, you're all going to die. You know, the inanity of the shopping mall is being disturbed by that extra bit of reality. It opens up we could do that but harder to arrange yeah you'd have to all these what do they call them what do they call them them film sets where they work with horses wranglers you'd have a raven wrangler wouldn't you (laughs) right so wake up we're all going to die what are you going to do about it I always remember this Bill Levadra former chairman here would in the first hill walking retreat, he took them to the top of cliffs and said to them, We're all going to die, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more lively kind of hill walking retreat. <laughs> the Badi Karata Sutta, I think that's in the Sutta Napata, ardently doing what should be done today for who knows tomorrow death. There is no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. So these four reflections are to set our mind to practice the Dharma thoroughly for the deepest of reasons. To get below all that accumulation and all that adding on and make ourselves into a big stacked up Christmas tree. And it's to get down into the change of heart. That's what they're for. To take the Dharma to that level. The big reasons. To abandon greed, hatred and ignorance completely. And to end suffering completely. Not just to tinker with a few cherry-picked pieces of the Dharma for a little patch job 
or a little palliative therapy. I loved writing that. <laughs> death is life, and life is death. So this might be a bit counterintuitive. Yeah? It's the way it is. Yeah? Things don't actually arise, abide, and cease in discrete phases. If you've been to Posada's Saturday morning study group, you'll have had a lot of this. Yeah? So things simultaneously arise and cease. At this point, this is Posada's catchword, isn't it? And this baffles me for years, so I'm, this is the fruits of my working around this. Yeah? There's no fixable thing there at all at any point to do any actual abiding. Yeah. A flower fades even as it comes into bloom. You can watch this in your flowers in your house. Yeah? It's like it's coming to something, coming to something, coming to something. And before it's even got to full bloom, there's bits of it starting to fade away again. A cup of tea peaks and it's being drunk. There's no abiding tea. It doesn't go, bring tea, cease. <laughs> yeah. It culminates, and its culmination it ceases. Yeah. This talk is unravelling word by word, minute by minute towards its end. And all the preparation culminates in its end. Yeah. This talk's delivery, the bit I've been working for and building this up, is it very, it's very cessation, it's very kind of fading away. Last week I was down at Padma Loka and um, the first weekend I got there on that day, the Friday, it snowed uh, in Norfolk and Saturday morning it was lovely, the sort of uh, Padma Loka grounds, a few acres all spread out. Twenty years ago or so they started planting little trees, they made a little wood, it was coming to these lovely little kind of... Uh, trees, some of them getting to the height of this room even there and the snow was all piled up on the branches of the trees and there's these kind of things a little bit like catkins in a bush with these big bushy flower things and there was big piles just piled up on them of snow and the sun was coming out it was a lovely clear day and the sun was rising, the temperature was coming up and then the wood was just this <coughs> Piles of snow just flitting. Lovely visual image of just little vertical slashes of white as, 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 as the, the snow is flitting down. Yeah. Each little heap of snow was poised within a narrow range of temperature. So if it had been a few degrees colder, it would have been that hot, useless, powdery snow that you can't make snowballs with. You know, you're trying to get this stuff to compact together. It used to go on off the tree. So it was the right temperature to stick and stay on the branches. But the temperature was rising. It was leaving the other side of this parameter. And it was becoming no, the conditions were no longer there for them to remain poised on the branches. Yeah. It was getting too warm for them. So they're supported. These little piles of snow are supporting the narrow range of essential conditions. And the conditions were changing and no longer supporting them. This is a very simple, pure example of conditioned co-production. Yeah. We are the same in a much more complex way. Yeah. Our system, the system that makes us up, has evolved to a much higher degree of complexity. Yeah. The snow is there's about four or five things involved in all these supportive conditions in that snow. But even with our complexity, we too are a concurrence of conditions. Yeah. We're at a poise. There's a poise of supportive conditions. It's a bit like a pyramid of performing acrobats. I mean, these policemen used to do it at the time, used to stack up on the motorbike. All completely poised, completely balanced. 
supporting this consciousness yeah, that we call me. And when the conscience, when the conditions change, when that poise falls apart, these conditions can no longer support us, and the con- consciousness cease. We cease. This experience now ceases. What we do is we grasp, we try to hold and build upon what has temporarily come together. It's a bit like you're in the motorway and you're making patterns out of the traffic that's going by. So you go, wow, that was four red Toyotas in a row. That must mean something. (laughs) For it's just random traffic and you're making patterns out of it. You're trying to make patterns and hold and try and build significance into it. The thing is, we don't get too attached to four Toyotas in a row. But we get very t- attached to this conglomeration. And we get very attached to the conglomerations around us that we're close to. Yeah. So, um, we build up a sense of me, a sense of Exhibit A. There we go. My hair. <laughs> so for the, the recording, this is like my ponytail I just cut off. Is that me? Was it me once? When did it cease being me? <laughs> Still getting used to putting my mala and my queso and not having to do this. Yeah? And if it was once, when did it stop being me? Yeah. There's all these many, many conditions, many, many things that come together and we bundle and tie and identify. It's kind of a weird thing looking at it. Probably weird for you because it's always behind me. Yeah. So there we go. Exhibit A. Dhammapada, verse 62. The spiritually immature person vexes himself thinking, sons are mine, riches are mine. He himself is not his own even. How then sons? How then riches? So we have to say it again at this point. Yeah? Buddhist practice isn't a get-out-of-jail card. Yeah? It's not an exemption from feeling. You don't get to glib answers because you suddenly become spiritual. You know, sort of, Your mother has died? Oh well, never mind. All things are impermanent. You get drummed out for that, <laughs> quite rightly. Yeah. It's not a way to sidestep the human predicament, yeah? but it's a way to grow through it, to bring awareness and kindness to it, to grow through it. So here's the best poem I know in this. Yeah? I've cribbed it again from Vajradarshini's talk that I was talking about earlier. Issa, a Japanese pure land poet. So he lost his children. I think he was a monk in his early life, but he managed to get married. Had four children, and they all died in a smallpox epidemic. And his wife died, I think, with the same disease. So this is a very famous poem, and it's—I'll just say one thing about Jew. So it's a famous, a favourite Japanese image for impermanence. This um, current interest we have in wabi sabi. The sabi bit is a sort of poignant, aesthetic, refined sadness that usually comes with reflection on. Permanence and things passing. And a lot of Japanese poetry sort of moves towards that. And they have these classic images, and Jew is one of them. So Jew is a symbol for tears, it's a symbol for sorrow. It's a symbol for, um, if you look at the, the these delicate reflections, each little dew drops reflecting the others. So you have this symbol for a, the gossamer illusion of this impermanent world. And then they're so short-lived, just like the little piles of snow I was talking about, yeah? They're soon to vanish. And so they're a symbol for this poignant ephemerality, is that a word? A 
things. This word, this world of Jew, is only a world of Jew, and yet, oh, and yet. So this world of Jew is only a world of Jew, and yet, oh, and yet. So the wisdom, but also the heart, the tender. There's a loss in that last line. If only. Oh, and yet. You can't dismiss it with, this word of June, thank you. <laughs> it reminded me of being in Ireland this Christmas and uh, I think it right down to earth. And um, staying with my folks and there was ice on their drive and their car was at the bottom of the drive and make it up. And they were going out and they're in their late, getting them to their late 70s now and they're starting to get a bit frail and various things wrong with them but I just caught them out the window kind of like helping each other down across the ice some of these little, little old round we all can be turned into little old round people but they were quite frail just helping each other down across the ice and there's something about that the, you know, the worries that we always have for our parents to get old and everything and they're still like supporting each other something like the human the tender human quality in the midst of you know, the impermanence reality of being human so the Buddha's life yeah, this is paranavanity yeah, it's not just about our experience of death yeah, it's not just about us we're commemorating the Buddha's paranavanity the Buddha's own passing away this is what the statue here symbolises yeah. so we'll come back to this so to the degree we consider ourselves <coughs> Buddhist we go for refuge to the Buddha yeah, we orientate ourselves to his teachings to the example of his life and towards his experience. What we do is we bring our own experience into alignment with the experience of the Buddha through his teaching, through the Dharma, through what we can find and read and and reflect on in in the Dharma. And our response to death that we have and become more aware of comes into relation with his insight into death. And our relation to death is informed by that. Our response is informed. So I'm going to look at the Buddha's got two main experiences of suffering and death. There's two points where suffering and death are major, or feature large. The first one is going forth. So firstly, there's a young Buddha, or pre-Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, and he's, uh, he sees old age, sickness and death. The famous images, the stories of him seeing the old person, the sick person, and the dead person in the streets. And this is back to Buddhism beginning with the experience of suffering. This is where historically Buddhism begins. It's, it's, and those images, those sights sinking in. He responds by going forth. Yeah? He cuts off his princely hair and his beard. He takes off his jewellery. He takes off his fancy robes. He puts on rags and he leaves. He leaves home. Yeah? He leaves habit, custom and circumstance. He's followed the, uh, I don't know who says it, but he's followed this advice. Was it Hakuin or something? Just, if you're afraid of dying, die now, and you'll never have to do it again. Yeah. This is his response. So Buddhist practice is full of going forth. Yeah. It's full of renunciation. Yeah. Not so popular these days, but in a way, you dig through the Buddhist texts and you can't miss it. Yeah. Initiation is at the heart of Buddhist practice. In our outfit, it's ordination. Think of, we get ordained, we're going to get something. But we're not. We're not gaining anything in a sense. It's a going forth. It's a letting go. 
ordination, initiation, moving deeper into Buddhist practice is in itself a death, it's a letting go. In a very important sense, we don't get anything. It's better to see it for, see it as a, a going forth or a letting go from what's hampering you. A going forth into the unknown. Because if it was known, it wouldn't be going forth, would it? The little shuttle bus went back to that barbell. It's sort of like going to something we know already is not a going forth. These retreat centres of Gukhiloka for men, Akashavana for women, where people go on their four month retreats, three months retreats. Um, they're a bit like tigers' caves in the mountains. Footprints go in and nothing comes out. Usually people do come back out again. I, I, came, I came back out, you know, but it's like the attitude, the myth of it is you're leaving and you're going into the unknowing. And this is what changes. Yeah. That's initiation. That's one way of looking at going forward. Another is love. Yeah. Yeah, love is a going out from oneself into the unknown. Yeah. It's a giving to another. It's not a getting something. Anything fulfilling involves change. It involves a moving from one thing to another. Yeah. I was hearing recently that um, there's plans. Majimaloka in Birmingham is where a number of people live um, and there's study retreats done there and various activities and there's the order office there and such like and Sangharakshita's got his he's got his Banti flat to one side yeah. where he's partly sighted and he just knows the routine around that he goes walk around the garden he can go down the hill to the local park and go walks with people around that and he's just kind of like quite happy living there but there's plans to sell it up and move and build somewhere else a sort of new central place where the order can have conventions and larger meetings and such like and have an area for him and he's, he's 84 he can hardly see he's got used to his routines and he's not that keen on going but I heard that he said something recently about well okay I suppose we should never stop going forth <laughs> so far. The Guhat, oh, how do you say this? Guhataka Sutta, from the Suttanapata. See them floundering in their sense of mind, like fish in the puddles of a dried up stream. And seeing this, live with, and seeing this, live with no mind. Not forming attachment for states of becoming. Subdued desire for both sides. Comprehending sensory contact with no greed. Doing nothing for which he himself would rebuke himself. The enlightened person doesn't adhere to what's seen, to what's heard. Comprehending perception, he'd cross over the flood. The sage not stuck in possessions. Then, with arrow removed, living heedfully, he longs for neither this world or the next. So that's a little on the Buddha's, the stuff around the Buddha's going forth. So it's Parnavana, as it were celebrated today. Pari is a bit simply put, complete, utter, utterly. And nirvana is the word for blowing out. Yeah. The blowing out, the ending of greed, hatred and delusion. Or as uh, one of the online translators, Tanisaro, puts it, unbinding. So it's complete and utter blowing out, or complete and utter unbinding. This is what when the Buddha's lying down, the Jujja symbol, this is him coming to the end of his life and moving into things get tricky here. It's said that the Buddha after his Parnavana is neither reborn or not reborn or both or neither. Yeah. 
in a way, is the going forth still continued into realms that we don't know what, do we? The Muni Sutta, from the Sutta Napata, says, Knowing all dwellings, not longing for anyone anywhere, truly a sage, with no coveting, without greed, he does not build, for he has gone beyond. The Paranavana statue, where well, is this little one we've got here, which uh, Tarasiddhi brought back from Bodh Gaya on our pilgrimage three years ago now, is it? Or the big one you get at Kushinagar where the Buddha died, the Buddha had his Paranavana, which is like, it's this length, it's almost, isn't it? It's a big length of a stone that they carried from about a thousand miles away. <laughs> from Mathura all the way up to uh, Kushinagar. And there's something about the figure. It's completely at home, completely at ease. And completely at home, like that last thing, knowing all dwellings, not longing for anyone anywhere. Yeah? Totally ease with everything, but not holding or building or grasping to anything. Yeah? At home and having gone beyond. Yeah? But not gone beyond to anywhere. There isn't the Buddha, death, than a really big Buddha. Yeah. It's just like it's ungraspable, isn't it? isn't an anywhere. Yeah. Bigger than death, but not a bigger thing. Not anything at all. Yeah. Not even nothing. But boundless. Here's we can get to unbinding, boundless. Gone forth from any grasp boundary, any fixed identity, utterly beyond our little grasping minds. So I want to just almost finish now. Two deaths. So we looked at death being inevitable. Yeah. It's not a matter of avoiding it. But Buddhism's not going to give you a, the get a jail card that will help you avoid the experience. <coughs> it's a matter of which death we choose. Yeah. A good one or a bad one. Negatively, we cling to what is already passing, what is gone. We're like clinging to something that's already dead. For me, maybe it's living with somebody who watches Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's <laughs> all these horror images of Vampires, zombies, everything. It's all kind of something that is should be dead, but is still carrying on. Yeah. So that's death done wrong. You're clinging to something that you're losing. Yeah. The other is positive. It's the going forth. Yeah. It's living with the way life is. Living with the ever-changing nature of things. Yeah. Everything in life is impermanent, flowing over into the next. In a way, it's going with the beat of life. I couldn't help thinking of... Uh, you know, Baloo in the Jungle Book, one of my favourite characters, was he? He says at one point, get with the beat, Bagsy. There's that, that sort of slightly that stuffy uh, panther, isn't it? The black panther. He's got a very proper and puppet English accent. And uh, Baloo's kind of like, get with the beat, Bagsy. Yeah. So that's the positive, is get with the beat of life. Get with the way life is, the transient, ungraspable nature of it. In our studies of Buddhism, we've all probably come across this with wheel of life and the spiral path. There's these two modes. The negative is the samsaric, the round, the endless round, the wheel of life. It's cyclical, it's going round, maintained by craving and grasping. Endless round of clinging and suffering. Clinging and suffering. The nirvanic, the spiritual path, is that of this being that leads to something greater. This leads to something greater. This leads to something more free. This leads to something more free. This leads to something more unbound. This leads to something more unbound. And on it goes. Yeah. An opening into potential, a growing, a developing. And that is our choice. That's at the heart of our Buddhism. Yeah. That's why in these courses we just go over and over them again, don't we? Beginner's course, level two, 
start with the mitral course, year two mitral course, year three, we come back to these two images again and again. Samsari and the Nirvana. Living well, uh, living badly, dying badly, living well, dying well. William Blake sums it up as usual, doesn't he? He who binds to himself a joy does the wingeth life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives an eternity sunrise. Finally, compassion for all beings. So I've got another image of the walking Buddha. The Padmaloka has somebody a picture of, this must be the biggest Christmas present I've ever seen. Uh, a group in Taiwan or Hong Kong sent uh, the part of our movement, the part of our order movement out in Nagaloka, in Nagpur, sent them a 20 metre Buddha. How long is that? <laughs> it's upright, you know. And this Buddha is striding, walking. And this is an image, I think, that Dr. Mbedkar, you know but Dr. Mbedkar who sort of struggled to free the untouchable, his people, like an Indian Buddhist Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, out of the suffering. And he was always uh, criticising the monks here, the Buddhists he knew, for being passive. And he thought, the Buddha walked. Yeah. And he was interested in straining walking Buddha. So at Nagaloka they've got this picture. This. Have a look, it's probably on... TBMSG after everyone news. <coughs> Imagine getting out of a big parcel. What, what have we got? What's this? Yeah. Unwrapping it. About the height of the, the dental hospital. No, not the whole dental hospital. How many? Twenty metres. Twenty metres. Yes. Yes. Oh, sorry. That's three stories. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> But this is the Buddha responding after his awakening. Yeah? The Buddha's enlightenment does not stop under the Bodhi tree. It's not a culmination. It's when he gets up. It's when he walks all the way to Sarnath through the heat of the main June. Uh, well, it's June, isn't it? Heat of, of, of what's now Bihar. And he goes to find these other people that have been practicing with him before. And he communicates to them. They get the message. And that is the culmination of his enlightenment. So this is a third kind of Buddha, isn't it? We've looked at the Buddha going forth, quite dynamic. We've looked at him, Parnavana. Yeah. So it's an active Buddha. Yeah. It's an active, heroic Buddha. In a way, if you want to chill, you just go across to the Buddha bar and find a dark corner, and you chill there. Buddhism is this active, outgoing, outward-moving tradition. And Bedka was stressing that. When the Buddha decides to leave the peace of the Bodhi tree, yeah, when he comes down out of his exalted meditative states, when he comes down to reach out to others, he says, There are those with but little dust in their eyes. Open is the door to the deathless. He's going to communicate the Dharma. The Dharma followed, the Buddhist practice followed, is the way from death, suffering, to the deathless. So his response is a Dharma, born out of compassion. It's all very exalted, isn't it, of uh, the Buddha? And we're going forth from uh, of bliss, from the peace of the Bodhi tree, and walking out to connect with others, to move out towards others. But in our more immediate level, our level of practice, it's, uh, it's practicing metta. Yeah. It's a going forth from that isolation, from that sort of stacked up, acquisitive, you know, something like Christmas tree figure, you know, out into empathy, yeah, out into solidarity with others. It's moving a practice into a bigger context. 
It's acting out of awareness of the preciousness of all human life, of all life. As this phrase, colloquial terms, is this world is not about you, darling. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of an image of what a wonderful world it would be if uh, this me and you know me and my problems didn't always get in the way. It's like, like having a camera, you're taking lovely views, and the me always wants to get right in the middle. <laughs> Endless photographs with the same face. Look at me, you know. Whereas we don't mind him being in the picture, but just as much as the other people. There's always lovely, beautiful views out there to see. Always other lovely people to see. There's always me going, what about me, you know. Getting in, getting in filling up the viewfinder. Rather than just like being there in the scene and not hogging it. Always spoiling the scenery in every photo. Dhammapada. Others do not realise they were all heading for death. Those who do realise it will compose their quarrels. All living beings are terrified of punishment. All fear death. Making comparison of others with oneself, one should neither kill nor cause to kill. It's the empathy. It's like pressures of one's own experience. And there's another being, so it'll be the same. Life's short, so those who realise we're heading for death compose quarrels. And the one about the, we're all terrified of punishment, we're all terrified of suffering, we all fear death. We're all in the same leaky boat. It's like the people, um, must be age I'm getting to get more and more people who are on the brink of serious illness or in serious illness and then get a sort of reprieve, a, a kind of clear ticket again. And then think, oh that's great. And then realising, well they've just come down off of the gunnels into the same leaky boat as the rest of us. Yeah. The whole boat's slowly sinking. <laughs> we can only get an extension of life, isn't it? Yeah. It's a viable extension of life. We're all in the same leaky boat. So love, metta, is the only response to suffering. Yeah. Whoever is experiencing it. And love is a going forth. It's going forth into, from holding, the grasping, the sort of unhelpful way of living and the unhelpful way of dying into that helpful way, that bigger, truer world. Yeah. A world of both life and death. Yeah. Of unstoppable rising and unstoppable ceasing. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.